Our Father which art in heaven, we're so grateful to be able to come before you. We're thankful for the opportunity we have to bow before you. And as we go into this topic about secular psychology, we ask for your Holy Spirit to give me the speaker wisdom and understanding and how to present and then that you may open the minds and hearts of our dear people who are here. We thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for the truth that you've given to us and we may we learn as your people to embrace it so that we can know to deal with everything that comes our way. In the name of Jesus, your son, we do pray. Amen. Amen. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. Um, yes. Um, I am a licensed counseling psychologist. Many times people refer to me as a clinical psychologist, but in the psychology world, if the clinical psychologist heard me being referred to as a clinical psychologist, they would not like that. Although we do very similar work. I am a counseling psychologist with a PhD, received that from Ohio State, and I've been in the field of psychology since 1988. So I've been doing this for a while. I taught for seven years, and then I was in private practice full time between 94 and 2007. In 2007, I ran across a sermon by uh, Pastor Ophiel online, blasting a lot of what I learned. Didn't like it at first, and the Holy Spirit led me. And I started to do more studying and found out that much of what I learned was not biblical. I thought I was helping people. You know, I thought I was helping people with Freud and, and Carl Rogers and all of these folks. I'm going to talk a little bit about them later. But as I started to read more of the Bible, Spirit of Prophecy, and even science, which I call true science when it supports Bible and Spirit of Prophecy, is showing something different than what people are doing in their practices. And so I wanted to share some of that with you today, not only how psychology has come in and affected us as individuals, but how it affects us as a church. And then talk about some of the concepts that we just throw around and have accepted as truth, when in actuality there's a lot of error that's there. We're going to talk more about that. So that's a brief, quick blurb about me. I might be sharing more as we go on. I'm just curious, how many people in here are in the field of social work or psychology or something related? Put your hands up. Okay, great. We have a few. Um, I used to tell people not to go into these fields, and then that's when I was first uh, exposed to the truth, and the Lord has kind of brought me to the center that I recognize we do need people to do counseling and, and things of that nature. We just need people to be following Bible and spirit of prophecy and true science. I like to use those as the three sources, okay? So keep that in mind as we talk. And I've entitled this Secular Psychology, Satan's Alluring Path, because it's very alluring to come into this field. And you'll understand why as we move on. Now, let's just briefly start out with the great controversy. We know about that. We've heard that term, right? Great controversy. Basically, there's a, a war between Christ and Satan. It's either Christ's way or God's way versus Satan's way. God's character is at stake. His character has been maligned, starting in heaven. Satan came up with all of these lies about um, God's character, and the universe is now wondering which is truth, which is error. Now, when Christ died on the cross, it began to show the universe the true nature of Satan. But the controversy still continues. And the question that the universe and the world is asking, is his way the best? Is God's way the best? Can we as earthly beings truly follow and keep his law? Satan says we cannot. Can we emulate Christ's or God's character? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, for we are made a what? unto the world and to angels and to men. People, beings here and in the universe are watching us, wondering, can they carry this through? Can they really emulate God's character? Can we keep God's law? 
Satan's goal is to deceive men to follow his way. That's his goal. His goal is, if I can get people to believe my way, I will have this world in the palm of my hands. He leads men to think they don't need God, and neither do they need to follow his law or his methods. That's what Satan wants us to, to believe. We don't need to follow that. And he wants us to depend no more on what? And exalt? Do you see psychology coming to your mind now? He wants us to follow our natural inclinations. Do what seems best. Do what feels good. He wants us to follow our feelings. All of this is part of Satan's plan to win the great controversy. And we don't realize this. And so he's found various avenues through which he can come in and especially deceive us as God's people, Christians, and even more Seventh-day Adventists, deceive us into thinking his way is better. Satan is battling for our what? That's where the great controversy is being played out for us on an individual level, in our minds. He does not want us to have the mind of Christ. The theme of, of, of this year's WIC is what? This mind in you, and I love this theme. But Satan is saying, we don't, we don't want him to his imps. We don't want them to have the mind of Christ. We want them to have our mind. Alistair Huang this morning shared so wonderfully about fiction and how that is affecting our mind and that how we are learning or, or picking up the character of Satan. I believe, brothers and sisters, I'm going to make a bold statement, that secular psychology, psychology that is not based on God's principles, is another avenue that Satan is using to get control of our minds. Mm -hmm. And I believe this is so important for us to understand, especially as we are here at the very close of time. And I'm so grateful to the Lord that he pulled me out of that darkness into his marvelous light to understand this and share this with others. Now, this began in the Garden of Eden. Let's read this together. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now read that verse, or keep that verse in mind, given what I just shared. And you knew some of the things about the great controversy. Satan's first experiment was with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And I was reading one book that said how he, or I actually wasn't reading a book. I was listening to someone on Audioverse, and he said that the way he got Eve was to reorganize her whole mind. If Satan had come to Eve straight out as an evil being, Eve would not have been deceived. But he had to reorganize the mind, and he had to deceive her by mixing truth and error. Isn't there truth and error in that? The truth is their eyes were opened. And they did know good and evil. The lie was, ye shall not surely die. And my belief is that the reason secular psychology has had such a hold on us is because in it is a mixture of truth and error. And you will see that as we go on and talk about some of these concepts. The servant of the Lord tells us, the track of truth lies close beside the track of error. And both tracks seem to be one to minds which are not worked by the Holy Spirit and which therefore are not quick to discern the difference between truth and error. If you look at that track and it goes off into the future, doesn't it look like they're coming together? That's how truth and error is, brothers and sisters, and that's what Satan uses to deceive us. If Satan should make an open 
open, bold attack upon Christianity, it would bring the Christian in distress and agony at the feet of his Redeemer, and the strong and mighty Deliverer would affright the bold adversary away. But this is how Satan worked. Transformed into an angel of light, he works upon the mind to allure from the only safe and right path. The sciences of phrenology, psychology, and mesmerism have been the channel through which Satan has come more directly to this generation and wrought with that power which was to characterize his work near the close of probation. As we near the close of time, the human mind is more readily affected by Satan's devices. Now, when I first was exposed to this quote, phrenology, if some of you may not know what that is, back then, during the 1800s, they would measure the bumps on people's head to determine their personality characteristics. And it was, um, at that time, psychology was not based on true science. It was a lot of hokey pokey things. And so, I, and initially, I thought, well, you know, that's no longer in existence. Psychology is more based on science, which, by the way, it is not. We'll talk about that more. Some of the aspects of psychology. And then I started to study a little bit more about mesmerism. Anton Mesmer, that's right, Anton Mesmer, Mesmer came up with a way of affecting people's behaviors, giving you a short story of it, through um, magnetism. He would put people in water and use um, some type of device with bodily fluids and all of that, not to get into too much of it. But if you look at how this began and people who followed afterwards, you will see that that was kind of the roots of psychotherapy, believe it or not. And so when I believe the servant, when, when the servant of the Lord came down with this, because she was often given a view of the future, I believe that there was some connection there, even between psychology as we believe and understand it now. So I don't throw this quote out as I used to, especially because she says his, this will characterize his work near the close of probation which is where we are right now. Are you all following what I'm saying? Yeah. So there is a connection between these three things, especially psychology and mesmerism. And as we move on, you will see that psychology, uh, uh, some of psychology is not based on true science. And we'll talk more about that. Psychology is the study of mental processes and behavior. That's a basic, simple definition of psychology. If you break down the words, the root words, psyche means soul. And back there, that word was synonymous with mind. And ology, whenever you see that, it means study of. So we're talking about the study of the mind. So let's look at some of the things of secular psychology that you need to start questioning. The impact of childhood. When I was taught in school, we were to, um, when we work with anybody in any type of emotional or mental disorder, we have to go back to their childhood. Some of y'all are familiar with that, right? When I initially started studying the truth, I was thinking, well, childhood does not have an impact. But then as I started to study the Bible and spirit of prophecy more, it does have an impact. So let's talk a little bit about that. Who's this man right here? Sigmund Freud, he was the first um, person in the area of psychology. He was not a psychologist. He was psychologist. He was actually a medical doctor who helped us to start to gain this supposed understanding that childhood affects us and we need to talk about childhood in order to heal. Who we are and what we do is affected by our childhood experiences. This is a simplistic version of Freud. Let's look at the Bible and see if some of that is true. What does it tell us in Proverbs 22, 6 and 7? We know this verse. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The uh, wise man Solomon, through the Holy Spirit, knew that the way you train a child is going to determine how they are when they get older, right? So childhood does have an effect. 
And then we have numerous examples in the, in the Bible. I just picked a few. And Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what does it say at the end? And walked in the way of his father. So he learned some things from dad that he carried on in his rulership. Again, we see the impact of what happens in childhood. Now I have several quotes from the inspiration. The spendthrift boy will be the spendthrift the vain, selfish, self-caring girl will be the same kind of woman. This verse is telling us the habits we develop as children will determine the habits that we have as adults. So we're seeing here some support that what happens in childhood has an impact on us. This was deep to me. The character of Napoleon Bonaparte was greatly influenced by his training in childhood. Unwise instructors inspired him with a love for conquest, forming mimic armies and placing him at the head, at their head as commander. Here was laid the foundation for his character of strife and bloodshed. Isn't that interesting? So how Napoleon was brought up as a child had an impact of, of not only on him, but the world. Okay? This is another important one. When Voltaire, who was an atheist, infidel, atheist, was five years old, he committed to memory what kind of poem? An infidel poem, and the pernicious influence was never effaced from his mind. He became one of Satan's most successful agents to lead men away from God. Again, Knowledge that, or things that happen to us during childhood can have an impact on us as adults. And then this is talking about one of the mothers, I think is Moses' mother. She faithfully improved her opportunity to educate her child for God. She endeavored to imbue his mind with the love of God. She showed him the sin and folly of idolatry. How far-reaching in its results was the influence of that one Hebrew woman, the whole future life of Moses, the great mission which he fulfilled as the leader of Israel testifies to the importance of the work of the Christian mother. And then the, uh, we have the example of Hannah. Hannah had Samuel for only three years, but instilled in him wonderful principles that helped him in the environment that he was in. You know, he was exposed to Hoff, I always get them up, Nate, Hophni and Phinehas. And in that environment, because of those three years that his mother had him, training him in the way of the Lord, he was able to endure and not be influenced by the sons of Samuel. So what happens in childhood does have an impact on us. Another one, neither infants, children, or youth should hear an impatient word from father, mother, or any member of the household. For they receive impressions very early in life, and what parents make them today, they will be tomorrow and the next day and the next. So this is really important for parents or parents-to-be to recognize that what they do has an impact on the child. Now, this is where the error comes in. To resolve our problems, we must talk about and understand what happened in our childhood. That's what I was taught. If someone would come to me in my office, I would ask them, what type of childhood did, they, did you have? And I'm ashamed to say, if they would say to me, my childhood was good. I would convince them your childhood is not good or else you wouldn't be sitting in my office. And I would work with them, use all the psychological techniques that I could to help them walk out of that office with a focus on the negative things in their childhood. 
Because my belief was, if you have emotional problems, you had a bad childhood. And that's the belief of many secular psychologists, not all of them, but many of them believe that. And so in order to get over your problem, I need to help you understand what it is that your parents did to you, gain insight on that, and you will become a better person. Now, I do think, you know, if we're dealing with situations and we look at it and say, you know, why do I do this? We could look back to things that our parents might have done or modeled to us. There is some legitimacy in that and maybe opening up our eyes. But what I found out is that people were coming to me continually talking about their problems in childhood, knew about it, and still wasn't getting help. And after a while, I started to realize something is wrong with this picture. If their understanding of childhood is supposed to be getting them better, why are they jumping between three and four and five therapists? Something's wrong with the picture. So let's start looking at that. This, pr this principle laid the foundation for modern day talk therapy, the idea that you should come in and talk about your problems. This is a famous evangelist. I won't name who he is, famous um, um, evangelist on television and on radio. If we don't deal with the little boy or girl inside, we cannot know the God of the Bible. So the idea is that we have to get that little, know that little girl or that little boy that was wounded when, when we were younger. If we don't do that, then we can't really know the God of the Bible. And if you listen to some of the popular sermons out there, um, for years um, they've been talking about this wounded child and healing the inner child, and the idea is that this will help us spiritually. And then we have all of these things that's come about from this thinking. You might have heard some of these terms, inner healing, visualizing, dealing with repressed memories and this whole idea of generational sins. All of these concepts have come, up from, come out from the idea that we need to talk about childhood to be able to become better people. And it's actually coming to the Christian church and even the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I've met people who said to me, I'm so much better because I've understood what my father did to me or what my mother did to me or how terribly my brothers and sister treated, treated me and I'm freed from that. What do you say to someone like that who actually believes they're free? There's not much you can say other than pointing them. Uh, one person just did that to me recently. I was in another country, and I said to them, so how's your walk with the Lord since you've learned this? And her head just went down. It's great that she understood all the wonderful uh, things that happened, and she's such a more insightful person, but her walk with the Lord, she had to admit to me, was not strengthened as a result. And, and that's the um, come, come the problems that I have with this. Some cautions I want to give about traditional therapy. It reduces accountability. This was a priest. Remember when they had the whole Catholic priest episode, episode with molesting children? This priest went to therapy, and look what he said. What I've learned in my therapy is that I suffer from immature sexual development. And that goes back to when I was a kid. Nothing happened to me, but my sexual development was arrested in terms of probably when I was seven or eight years old. This is what the priest learned after being in therapy for about a year. He was placed back in the parish, and from what I understand, he continued to molest kids. The problem with traditional therapy, it may enhance understanding, but people like this need to be held accountable for their behavior. And it's also the same with us. If, as an adult, I am doing certain things that somehow might be related to what happened to me as a child, I still need to be held accountable for what I'm doing as an adult. I cannot continue to point to my parents at them, blaming them. You know, this started in the Garden of Eden. When God came to Adam, he says, where art thou? And he started to blame Eve, and then Eve blamed the, the um, serpent. 
This blame game has been going on from the very beginning. And the problem with traditional therapy that says to you, you need to understand and talk about childhood, is that it takes all of the weight off of the person and just blame my parents and just being able to talk about that, I'll be okay. Y'all following me with that? Then, that because of this um, whole therapy mindset, everything is either now a disease or an addiction or a dysfunction. How many of you come from dysfunctional families? Everyone's hand should be up. <laughs> because of sin, there's dysfunction in all of our families. Some are more than others, but because of sin, all of us have things that has happened to us that is not according to God's will. But everything nowadays is an addiction, and I do think there are some things that are legitimately addictions. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad they have Dr. Walsh here talking about that. But I also think sometimes people can use that as an excuse as well. And then we have the whole thing about disease. You know, there's an argument in the scientific world, psychological world about alcoholism. Is it is a disease? Is it is not? I'm of the mindset that it is not. I do believe, as Ellen White says in Ministry of Healing, that people who have problems with temperance and alcohol have a diseased brain. I believe that. But if we just look at it as a disease, sometimes that removes some of the accountability. And that's my fear in looking at that. Never in the Bible does it refer to sexual addiction, kleptomania, people who have problems with stealing, alcoholism or parental defiance as a disease or disorder, but only as what? Once it is a disease, it rules you, not Christ ruling. I don't know how many of you all keep up with the news recently. The governor of South Carolina was found to have an affair. Did you all hear that? I was, um, we were watching CNN in the hotel yesterday. We were in Sacramento, and they had two psychiatrists on there trying to explain why the governor had an affair. And I said to myself, this has been the danger of our mental health field and what it has done. He had an affair because he's a, a sinful being and chose to, to do something that's against his vows. But they were talking about him being a public person and his ego and his narcissism. And what happens with that is that we're letting people lose their sense of accountability. I know um, for years I've watched television and, and seen psychologists and psychiatrists explaining. And even when I was in the psychology field, um, following the false way, I would say to myself, I am so sick of these people giving their explanations of why people are doing what they're doing. Um, and, and then it's, it's crept into the courtroom, too, pleading for insanity. And, and the list goes on. And people are not being held accountable for their behavior. Again, I do believe some things can have an impact. But we need to deal with the fact that these folks have made choices. When a person is, is involved in sinful behavior, the cause is what? <coughs> Hello? The cause is what? If we tell a person involved in such behavior that he or she has a disease, we are excusing him from being responsible for his actions. Some of you may think, oh, she's taking such a hard stance on that. I do believe people need help in these areas, but we need to help them recognize you have made a choice and there are consequences for your choices. And as we do that, then we can also lead them down the path to healing. Do you see Christ ever excusing people when folks would come to him in the Bible? What did he say to the woman who was almost stoned? Go and sin no more. He started out with his grace and mercy. Neither do I condemn you. But then he ended with, go and sin no more. He recognized that she had a part to play in some of the situations she found herself in. And the Bible also confirms this. For where? For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, 
adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? And defile the man. Now, I've dealt with people who've been, who've gone through, through some terrible things, sexual abusive survivors. Someone asked me, Dr. Parks, if you're saying all of these comes from within, what about the women and men who's been molested by these, these perpetrators and been hurt? My, my response to that is there is some healing that needs to occur with that. But if you're choosing certain behaviors because of that or you're engaging in certain behaviors, there is still the matter of choice. You all understand what I'm saying? Yes. You might have been badly abused, and God sees your situation and understands that, but the matter of choice must also come into play. And when I start to deal with that with people who've been molested, and we talk about the past a little bit, then say, okay, now that this has happened to you, let's see some things that you can do differently in your life. It's much more effective than continuing to talk about all the bad things that happened to them when they were younger. Are y'all with me on the same page? Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, and that's something we need to keep in mind. The other thing about traditional therapy is that it can lead to dependency. The Bible tells us, cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. I worked with this airline mechanic for about two years. This is when I was in my old days. And we talked about a lot of things and I finally got to, to the point where I said to myself, I'm really not helping this man. And in the therapy field, if you're not helping, you don't just say to people goodbye. You find someone else you could transfer them to most of the time. So I felt as though he needed a male figure in his life. And there was a male psychologist who was a colleague of mine in another practice. And I called him up and said, you know, I have this gentleman I've been working with for two years. I think we've reached a plateau. Would you mind taking him on as a case? He, he took him on. And his sister calls me about a month later and says, um, what did you do to my brother? I said, why are you asking? You know, and I, there's not much I could have said because of confidentiality. She says, I wanted to share with you that he tried to kill himself the other day because you released him to some, another therapist. That's why the Bible tells us, cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. Thank God I was not sued. I could have been in the field of psychology when things like that happen. But my problem, the, the problem that I'm throwing out to you is with therapy sometimes, we, can, we continue to see this person for years, for months, it develops a dependency. And God does not want us dependent on man like that. He wants us to depend on him. The other thing about traditional therapy is that it can prevent us from learning through suffering. I read a book by a former uh, a psychologist who was from a whole different country. He says when he came here to America, he was amazed at how weak Americans are. He says, I, I was bombarded. He wasn't even a therapist. He just had a degree in psychology. He says, I was bombarded by people always calling me, asking me for help with this difficulty and that difficulty. He said, the country I came from, we weren't used in that way. And I was just amazed. There's one book that's called One Nation Under Therapy, how the health self movement has made Americans weak. We are really weak beings, and psychology, secular psychology, has not helped the situation at all. 
And because of this, we don't learn how we don't learn through sufferings. The Bible tells us now no chastening for the present seemeth to be grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. This is telling us whatever you're going through at the moment, it might not be fun. But afterwards, if we could just hang in there, there will be something that will be developed in our character as a result of this trial. It's easy for me to stand up here and tell you all this, but when I'm going to the trial, I don't always remember this myself. But I've had so many people come into my office and say, you know, I'm going through this difficult situation. I just need somebody to talk to. One or two, three times, um, that's no problem. But if you're continuing to look to people to help you through difficulties, Something is wrong there, especially as Christians. You know, when I first started doing counseling, Christians would come to me and with their heads down and say, I am so ashamed I'm in here. I can't believe that my, my life with the Lord is not helping me to deal with this. Something is wrong. And in my old mindset, I would say, oh, no, you're just more open-minded. This is a great place for you to be, you know, and I would encourage them. Now it's flip. I have Christians coming in. Great relationship with the Lord. Prayer life is wonderful. Witnessing, you know, study life is wonderful. Wonderful. I just need a little help with this. Whole different mindset. Just to tell you how psychology has come in and just really brainwashed us into thinking it's okay to go see. Now, in this case, I wasn't a secular psychologist, which is a little safer. Notice I say little. We'll talk about that in a while. But if they were going to a secular psychologist with that mindset, no telling what would have happened. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. How many of you all have gone through something and have come out on the other side a better person? I believe most of our hands should be up. However, if you're going to therapy to help you through these situations and depending on the therapist, you will not be able to say, as in here, when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now, notice I'm using some words here. Depending on the therapist, going for a long time. I'm not of the mindset that you should never see a therapist. I'm not of the mindset that you should never see a counselor. I believe that that was not God's perfect will for us, but he allowed Israel to have a king, and I believe he's allowing this for us. It's just the perspectives of those that you're seeing should you go into talk with them. When anyone despairs of God in the midst of suffering and thereby turns to psych psychological theories and therapies, they not only lose out on the possibility of spiritual growth, but they postpone the real help that God both promises and provides. We don't realize that. And more of us need to keep that in mind. This was also powerful um, when I read this in the SDA Bible commentary. Too often, Christians are prone to overlook the disciplinary value of difficult experiences. And this carelessness deprives them of precious lessons they might otherwise learn. And by the way, we don't always have to just run to therapists to miss out on this. Some of us are always depending on our friends, on our mother, on our pastor. And these people might be helpful on a short-term basis, but there's something God wants us to develop and prune in our characters as a result of these difficulties. And when we're always running, it helps us not gain that. I don't know how many of you all have heard of W.D. Frizee. 
founder of Wildwood, which is in Georgia. He has a whole series. I would admonish any of you all to get this. It's called How to Solve Problems. And he talks in that series, and I, I bought it thinking, oh, he's going to teach me how to deal with different problems, you know? But his basic premise here is that we are in the school of life preparing for the school of heaven. And sometimes we don't recognize the difficulties that are having, we're having now is developing a character in us so that we can live in heaven. He gave a simple example, such as a woman who, um, oh, I don't, I, sometimes I misquote stories, so I don't know if I should start this, but someone came in and she wanted to wash dishes, and what happened was it ended up being better that they came and prevented her from washing dishes. Something real simple. She was moaning and saying, Lord, I need to get these dishes done. Why are these people here? But in the long run, I remember what the um, final outcome was, but it was a blessing that those people showed up at that particular time. And sometimes we don't realize that when things are happening that might be inconvenience to us or frustrating, we don't see that God's hand is working in this. I was diagnosed, I can tell you something personally. Two years ago, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I could not use this hand at all. My husband had to help me comb my hair. He had to help me eat. I couldn't type on the computer. And I wondered, Lord, why are you afflicting me at this time? Actually, it's right after I finished this book. And I do have these available that talks about some of what I um, am talking about today, this book that I've written about the dangers of secular psychology. It was right after that. So I knew part of that was an attack of Satan. There was also some lifestyle things. My vitamin D levels were like deficient. And you read the research on vitamin D and multiple sclerosis, and it's more and more research showing that it increases with low deficient vitamin D. And I wondered why God allowed this to happen to me. But what I recognize now that I'm on the other side, when I see people with infirmities and disabilities, I have a much more empathic heart towards them. And I can, I can understand, because I've been there, a person who cannot use a limb, who cannot use an eye. And I know God has made me more compassionate as a result of that. But as I was going through that, I just kept asking him, why, why? But some reason, my faith really grew during that experience. Many people had come to me in those same kind of experiences. And if I'm not pointing them to the Lord, they're losing out on that growth experience as a therapist if they come to me. So I wanted to just share that personal experience. Now, you know, there are secular people starting to talk about this therapy thing. America has gone from 14% of our population having received psychological services in the 1960s to how much? 80% at the start of the 21st century. Isn't that amazing? More than $17 billion a year is spent for psychological therapies, which contributes to a $69 billion mental health industry. That industry continues to grow at an annual rate of 7%. And nowadays, when I talk to my colleagues and I attend some of my continuing education workshops, some of them can't even feel the calls that are going, coming into them because of the economic situation. The mental health industry is growing even more because folks don't know where to turn as they're losing monies and houses, et cetera. Now listen to this. In a review of 42 studies comparing professional therapists with paraprofessional therapists, people such as teachers who give counsel to students, only one study showed that the trained therapist got better results. When I first read this, I was kind of mad. You mean I spent these thousands of dollars getting a PhD and someone trained can do better than I can? That's my ego got to me then. 29 studies showed no difference between the two groups. And the remaining 12 studies showed that the paraprofessionals, those who are not trained, actually outperformed the professional therapists. 
which lets me know that what we're learning in school is not really where it's at, brothers and sisters. I'm not discouraging you from doing that, but as you go through your training, ask God to help you and show you what is the better way for healing. There is a better way. This was written by psychologists. Most problems faced by people would be better solved by talking to friends, spouses, relatives, or anyone else who appears to be doing well what you believe you're doing poorly. If I personally had a relationship problem, again, this is a psychologist talking, I, would, I couldn't work out with my partner, I wouldn't go and see a shrink. I would look around me for the kind of relationship I admire. That's who I would go to. I want somebody who's showing by his life that he can do it. You know, and God, I truly believe God's plan in our church was that when we're having difficulties, we would be able to find someone who can mentor us and help us through that. The reality is we're so busy nowadays, we can't do that. And that's why I believe in his permissive will. He allows us to go to others and get help. But my caution again and again is be careful who you're going to. Make sure they're grounded in the word of God. It's very important. Carl Jung, how many of y'all have heard of him? Listen, listen to what he says. Patients force their psychotherapist into the role of a what? and expect and demand of him that he or she shall free them from their distress. That is why psychotherapists occupy ourselves with problems which strict, strictly speaking belong to the what? He was one of the you know, foundational psychologists years ago. And even he recognized that we're going to therapists with things that we should be going to our pastors and other spiritual leaders for. The other problem with therapy is that, so especially this focus on childhood, some of us don't have good memories of childhood, and that's because our memories due to sin is distorted. With the passion of time, passage of time, the memory traces seems to change or become transformed. These distortions can cause us to have memories of things that never happened. I've been in situations where a person comes in and talks about all the terrible things their parents did to them, and then the siblings come in and say, you know, I don't remember exactly what they're talking about. Now, sometimes there are situations where the whole family turns against the person, but there are times when we say these terrible things happen in childhood, but memory is so bad, we don't really know if that's all, it's really the truth. Past the age of 10 or thereabouts, most of us find it impossible to recall anything that happened before the age of four or five. So if we go to these therapists that supposedly regression therapy, regressive therapy, I don't know if you all ever heard of that, has you going back into your childhood and acting out what happened, you know, it, you have to be careful with these things. Now, this was something I learned from a secular nutritional scientist. He was dealing with addictions, and I went to his workshop. He says that when we do talk therapy, all it affects is the limbic system. These are a group of interconnected structures that mediate emotions, the limbic system. If I just sit and talk to you about your problems all the time, all it does is titillate that emotional part of the brain. And you walk out saying what many of my clients used to say to me, you know, I feel so much better talking to you. But the key is, which I ask them now when I talk to them sometime, because I'm doing, back doing a little bit of counseling, are you getting better? You may be feeling better, but are you getting better? And this secular nutritional scientist says the only way we get better is if we affect what? Isn't that something? Science is showing that now. Frontal lobe houses the spirituality, will, morality. 
And the only way we're going to get to those things is through lifestyle and through spirituality. Sitting and talking with you about all the bad things that happened to you is not going to make the frontal lobe function better, brothers and sisters. And that's the other problem I have with too much talk therapy. Our brains need to be made to function better, and talking will not do that. So then Christian psychology is probably the way to go, right? Because I've been talking about secular psychology, so you should make sure you find someone who's a Christian psychologist. Is that what you think? No? OK, well, let's see. This is a Christian psychologist, and he says the all too common but disastrous result is that we tend to look at scripture through the eyeglasses of psychology when the critical need is to do what? Look at psychology through the glasses of scripture. And that's what I would do. I would take a piece of Freud's therapy and then find scripture to fit that instead of looking to see whether this could stand and be proved by scripture. Let me show, tell, let me show you some examples of looking at the scripture in the wrong way. This is a, a Minerith and Myron. I don't know if you ever heard of, heard of them. Paul probably had a, what kind of disorder? OCD. OCD. And God made him into a healthier obsessive compulsive Christian. Timothy was a little bit passive aggressive. So they're looking at scripture through the eyeglasses of psychology and diagnosing God's apostles and disciples. It sounds real plausible, brothers and sisters, but it is not truth. One night I was, I was driving, I was listening to a well-known Christian psychology program on the radio. On this program, a lady called and told how the Lord was using her. However, she was also a little discouraged because she did not have much Christian support. I was thinking to myself, surely with a little encouragement from the word, they could help and edify her. By the time the, the two Christian counselors were done with her, however, they had convinced her that she belonged in a clinic. They told her she had underlying difficulties that required professional counseling. I could not believe what I heard. What also struck me was that these two men, Christian counselors, were not instructing people from the scripture. Instead, they were primarily using theories of psychology. And that's the danger if you just look for someone who's a Christian psychologist or counselor. You need to ask them, what is the basis of the work that you're doing? Do we, are we pointed back to scripture? And unless they can tell you that, you need to have your antennas up and be careful with seeing that. This was asked, this was, um, um, spoken by Christian psychologists. We are often asked if we are Christian psychologists and find it difficult to answer since we don't know what the question implies. We are Christians who are psychologists, but at the present time, there is no acceptable Christian psychology that is markedly different than non-Christian psychology. As yet, there is no acceptable theory, mode of treatment that is distinctly Christian. Now, we have a little bit more at Seventh-day Adventist, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Um, El El Pastor Elder Thomas Mostert, the former president of the Pacific Union Conference, wrote one of the forwards from my book. And in there, I'm just going to read it to you, because sometimes I mess the story up. But it's just interesting to see. It says, um, after seminary, I decided to pursue a degree in psychology. I began doing part-time classwork while pastoring. Early on, the chair of the psychology department, a Baptist professor, told me at the end of his class that he had all of Ellen White's books and that our church was wonderfully blessed with heavenly insights. He said that if people would simply follow scriptural principles and the additional insights of Ellen White, all but those with serious mental illness would find the answers to their problems. 
a Baptist professor who was a psychologist said this, brothers and sisters. Amazing. And as I read more and more of what the servant of the Lord says, I am just amazed at the issues that she addresses. Things such as, oh, we're going to talk about that towards the end, but some of you may not give, be here for the end because there's so many other things. So I'll just give you some little tidbits. She says, um, if you shake a baby once, oh, how does the quote go, Magna? But she talks about shaking kids and what that does. Do you all remember the shaking baby syndrome? I remember working with a lady who was referred to me by our, we call the Department of Family and Children's Services in, in um, Georgia, basically those who take children into custody and all of that when they're not doing well in the home. And she had gone through nine weeks of a parenting class. The Holy Spirit impressed me to Xerox some pages from child guidance to give to her. She came back and said to me, who is this woman? Hmm. I've learned more from reading these pages you Xeroxed for me than my nine weeks of parenting classes. So what I'm, what I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, we have wonderful insights in these books. The problem is we don't really know how to study them. We read them and say, you know, I read through the Desire of Ages, but we don't know how to sit there and take it and underline and write out principles for living. And the same thing applies with the Bible. If we would learn how to do that, people would have actually been running to us as Seventh-day Adventists and say, how did you deal with these mental problems and emotional disorders? It's not too late, though. God is still on the throne, and that might happen one day. I don't know. How do we deal with the pain and current difficulties as we, we may be experiencing from childhood? There is some of us in here, on this campus, in the world, who are Christians, who are Seventh-day Adventists, who are dealing with pain from our childhood. We can't deny that. How do we deal with it? Just sharing with you some things that the Holy Spirit shared with me. First of all, we have to realize that true healing only comes where? Whoever you're talking to, if that person does not point you to God as the healer, beware, brothers and sisters. Earnestly seek God for help with this because he will grant it. The Bible tells us, he healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. God will do that for you if you're dealing with difficulties from childhood. And then when we're dealing with difficulties, a lot of us need to do some forgiving. That's why the Bible says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. I dealt with a lady who had been um, molested by so many different men. She had been to so many different therapists, and she came to me, and at that time, I was starting to move towards God's true way of healing, and I said to her, all these therapists that you've been who has, has anybody taught you about forgiveness? She says, not one. I said, we're going to work on that in here shared with her some scripture, some Ellen White. I don't tell them Ellen White, this is a prophet. I just say to her, this is an inspired writer. She's written a lot of things from years ago that science is now starting to confirm. They asked me no questions. So she started reading, and after a few weeks, she came and says, I truly believe I am healing now. Out of all the therapies that I've been through, now that I'm learning to forgive these men and what they've done to me, I believe that healing is starting to occur. Yeah. But, you know, we make more money when we don't talk about these kind of things. We just keep them coming to us. And psychologists are doing, and social workers and therapists, they're not vicious people. They're doing what they've been trained to do. But as we as Christians, we have an, an, an additional source, the Bible, that can help us with things. For, the other thing we need to do is recognize that we cannot blame anyone for our current life. Each person will be responsible for their own lives. Ezekiel 18.20, if you have a Bible, turn with me to that. I want to, um, and guess what? I didn't bring my Bible. Eze thank you so much. Ezekiel 18.20, the Bible confirms some of these things we're talking about, about responsibility for our own life. And I want to ask someone if you can, well, maybe not, because it's not going to be on the tape. I'll read it. Ezekiel 18.20. 
got to remember where Ezekiel was. I lost my thought for a moment. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. This is a, a, a verse that lets us know that we are all responsible for ourselves. And it says, getting to that age where I need glasses, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So no longer, thank you, sister. I might need it again, so let me hold on to it. No longer can we blame our parents for what's happening because we, the Bible tells us that each of us are going to be accountable for ourselves. Amen? Amen. Read accounts in the Bible about people betrayed and hurt by loved ones and seek to gain strength from these stories. We don't understand the practicality of the Bible. There are a lot of people in the Bible who have gone through terrible things. Look at this. To be morally abused is a horrible experience. Yet Daniel suffered such abuse to the extreme when his captors robbed him of his ability to have children by making him a... Can you get any more abuse than that? Daniel's captors damaged his body, but he did not let them hurt his mind, his spirit. He became mighty in these areas. Ask God to help us move past our hurts. Lord, I've been through all of this as a young child, as an, a teenager, but help me move past it. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we won't look that out because we're running out of time, says, if everyone, anyone be in Christ, he is a what kind of creature? All things are, behold, all things are become. Do we believe that? When we give our hearts to the Lord, that we become new? Philippians 3.13 and 14 basically says, forgetting those things which are be. I press towards the mark of the. Now, just because you repeat that verse doesn't mean you're going to forget all the bad things that's happened. But it's a beginning. And God can help you really apply that verse to your lives. Contemplate on Christ and what he has done for us. If you're dealing with hurts from the past. When the Bible takes people to the past, it takes them to the cross, not to their childhood. Amen. The cross is where the answer for sin is found. The solution is not digging in the garbage piles of our past. The answer is at the cross. At the cross, there is power to overcome the past. We are giving a new start on life. As we are forgiven by God, we are now able to forgive those who have harmed us. That's why Paul says that he will preach only the cross and him crucified. I glory not, but in the cross. The cross is such a central part of our lives as, as Christians, and we need to recognize that. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. These are verses that we just quote off the top of our heads. Well, we don't really apply them, brothers and sisters, as we should. There is great hope in Romans 8.28, not only for believers' present and future circumstances, but also for all that happened to them prior to salvation. If a grown believer, for instance, who has survived great difficulties as a child, sees that God can and does use every circumstance in his life for a purpose, there is hope. For indeed, God does use all things, past, present, future, to work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers, but as for you, Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Indeed, there have been Christians whose most difficult childhoods prepared them for serving God in unique and important ways. 
Sometimes we look at childhood and we wonder why God allows this, but if we are one of his children, there is a reason. Ask God to help you change your thoughts about the past. For example, ask him how you can benefit from your negative childhood experiences you've had. These are some questions. I, um, one person that I, I kind of admire, he's not a Seventh-day Adventist, and I usually don't push people, but he has what's known as the Advanced Training Institute of America, Bill Gothard. He's one of the few out there, I believe, who has some good things to offer from a, a, a counselor perspective. This is a, he come, put, gave us some example of someone who wrote down what they learned from suffering, the parents going through a divorce. It can cause you to see the importance of overcoming bitterness. Most marriages are destroyed by bitterness. It allows you to understand more about Christ, his earthly father dying um, during his youth and helping caring for his mother. It puts you in a special classification with God. God is a father of the? Fatherless. In Psalm 68, 5. And he also tells us in Psalm, he will be with us when parents forsake us. This person wrote this down when the counselor said, tell me some good things that's come from your parents' divorce. It gives you a basis for comforting others from broken homes. God comforts us, and we can comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you are able to take the past and turn it into something to say, God, how can you now use me? You will grow and flourish in a way much more than if you see a therapist for months and months and years. I challenge you to that. A godly counselor who relies on biblical principles can help you through this process, if that's what you need. And this is something to keep in mind if you're looking for a counselor. That person must rely on biblical principles. It doesn't require a large number of sessions. The counselor does not need, as we saw in that study, any specialized psychological training per se. Now, I will say, because of how we think as human beings, um, people will be more likely to come to me because I have that PhD in psychology. But in reality, if you are grounded in God's word, you can help people almost quite similarly to how I can. Um, and it's, it's a powerful thing. Discourages the person from focusing too much on most of the techniques in secular psychology cause us to focus too much on self. How do you feel? You know, what did that do to you? And you just focus, self-focus, self-focus. And the problem in our society, most of our problems are coming from selfishness. And you go to a place that encourages that, you're not going to be able to grow. It points the people to Jesus, not the counselor, as the source of help. And then this is a psychologist who wrote about why Christians can't trust psychology. He says these are some tests of the effectiveness of counseling we need to look at. Does it truly change a person? Do they become more Christ-like? If you're going to a counselor, you need to be saying, am I becoming more Christ-like as a result of these sessions? Are they led into Christian maturity? Are you growing as a Christian as a result of your counseling? Are their thought and behavior patterns brought in conformity to God's word? Oh, that's the end. Those are some things <laughs> that you need to keep in mind as you're looking for counselors, as you're uh, yourself developing in a, as a counselor. And if you're developing as a counselor, I strongly advise you, start reading some of the principles in the Bible. This is what I'm doing, because I'm still learning. This is just a two or three year journey for me thus far. But as I read the Bible and I start to think about some of the people I used to see, some of the problems I hear about, I'm writing down principles now that I can share with people. I remember working with an atheist and I said to her, she was going through stress on the job. I said, you know the Bible. I know you don't believe in the Bible, but it has something in there that I want to share with you. As thy day, so shall thy strength be. 
Do you know that woman came back to me two weeks later and said, Dr. Parks, you shared that principle with me? And each day I say to myself, as thy day, my strength will be. And she says, that has helped me tremendously. You can use the Bible even with atheists. In that case, she was open enough for me to say, you know, this is from the Bible, but some of them just pull out principles and start sharing it. Some people ask, how can I work with non-Christians? You can, just share the principles and you'll see that they will grow much more. So I admonish those of you who are in this area, study the Bible, study more of um, inspiration, and you'll find you'll help people much more. I pray this has been a blessing to you. Amen. I kind of ran through it a lot. The next sessions we'll be talking about other aspects of psychology, but I wanted to start out with this for those who may be in the field or those who are dealing with childhood difficulties. We pray that you will grow and recognize the power of the gospel in your life as you deal with all that comes your way. Amen? Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for all you've given to us, and we pray for the faith to believe that there is nothing that you cannot handle. We pray for those in here who are in the field of mental health that you may give them wisdom, direction, and guidance into how they can utilize your word more in helping those that come to them. And Father, if there are those here who are hurting from the past, we pray that some of what has been shared to them, with them can lead them on the road to healing. Lead with all of the rest of the sessions. In the name of Jesus, your son, we do pray. Amen. God be with you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.